I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Stefan Rinka, is a professor at the Department of History at the Institute for Latin American Studies and the Friedrich Meinecke Institute at the Free University of Berlin. He was awarded the Alsate Research Award by the Mexican Academy of Sciences, an honorary doctorate by the National University of General San Martin in Argentina, as well as the Einstein Research Fellowship. Dr. Rinka explores the history of Latin America, especially Mexico and Chile, primarily from a trans-regional and global historical perspective, focusing on cultural globalization and North Americanization, popular culture, revolutions, memory and historical consciousness, history of knowledge, and trans-American relations, spanning from the beginning of colonization to the present. His latest book, Cortez and the Conquest of Mexico, was published in German in 2019. The English version, Conquistadors and Aztecs, a History of the Fall of Tenochtitlan, is due to be published this year and is the subject of today's interview. So, Stefan, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. So let's uh, get started by asking, how did you get interested in Latin American studies? Actually, it goes back to my to my youth. I was born in a very small town in, in, in Germany, so I did not have any contact to Latin America at all. And I didn't even know where that was located when I went to school. Obviously, I learned about that. But later on, when I when I grew a little older, I became politically active and uh, active in the solidarity movements and and so i learned about uh, dictatorships in in latin america in that period in the late 1970s early 1980s and uh, i was part of several groups later on then uh, when i started studying I, I i studied history which in the german curriculum and i suppose in many curricula around the world is still very much a national history, which is being taught at universities. So uh, I did not at first have in mind studying Latin American history. That came at a later point. It was due to a, a professor of mine, Hans Joachim König, who was a, was a fabulous teacher and uh, he attracted me to the, to the subject. And then I found out, of, of course, my political interests and my study interests did converge and uh, that's where i started specializing on on latin america which i did first for my phd actually and i went on then doing my my second phd in the german system the habilitation on a chilean uh, subject so that was basically uh, the background for it and I, of course, uh, once I got started with the interest in Latin America, I soon found out how much Latin American history has to offer to somebody who's really interested in history at large and uh, how much uh, we can learn as a European. Also, we can learn from Latin American experiences in today's world. So I assume you, you grew up in West Germany. I would think that East Germans would not have been allowed to be involved in the solidarity movement. Well, you know, uh, East Germans did have a very strong solidarity movement uh, against dictatorships, uh, a Chilean solidarity movement, but that was a, a state-directed kind of movement. And uh, while ours, yes, I did grow up in West Germany, uh, while ours, of course, was a grassroots movement, that there was no uh, political uh, program uh, from the state behind it, while in East Germany, of course, everybody had to come to the meetings and there was not so much voluntary work involved. So that was 
kind of kind of different but they did have their own uh, movements of solidarity with especially with with Chilean exiles who after 73 went in great numbers to East Germany only to get frustrated from the from the communist system there and then finally end up in West Germany <laughs> because uh, they found out that that type of communism wasn't what they had wanted to to look out for but no in our it was more or less of a, of a grassroots kind of thing we were you know uh, active in in uh, demonstrating against well you know it was, it was a school group so not such a big thing but we were very much fascinated with the Nicaraguan revolution and all these kind of things that were going on in Latin America and at that po uh, point in time of course Latin America was uh, attracting everybody's attention it was also those were the years of the literary boom in the 1980s and then Latin America was a real point of attraction when you thought about the wider world and what was going on and and the changes and the challenges to the situation of that time and Latin America was immediately in the focus of course that all changed in 1998 um, 1989, 1990, when the wall came down and then everybody looked at Eastern Europe. So then, but I had already made my decision and I was a, a Latin Americanist, a young, very young Latin Americanist at that point. And I, I stayed with my topic and uh, I still think that it uh, is a wonderful region to study. Yeah. And Latin America, of course, was a hotspot of the Cold War back then. Yes, exactly. So there were many, many uh, perils also to, you know, I grew up very, very close to the to the inner German border. You know, we used to play at, at, at the side of a river where where we would fish and, and then, you know, the soldiers, the, the front the frontier troops of the GDR would come and cut our way where you fish with the, the cord that you fish with. They would cut that because it, it had flown through uh, over over the middle of the river and the other the other side of the river were already east german fish so we were not supposed to fish there and so on but those were the crazy days and um, and so for me uh, the cold war uh, was very much an experience you even had to go to the army i did my my obligatory uh, service and uh, but of course, it was a very strange situation because part the other half of my family lived on the other side of that border, so we could wave to each other across the the border line. But that's a different story, you know. I mean, we're talking about Latin America now. <laughs> right. So, when did you first visit Latin America? Was it before your doctorate or during? Yeah, that that was immediately after my doctorate. I I did my doctorate on German Latin American relations, so I still was with one step in doing Latin American stuff, but still held back by the lack of financial means also to do such a big trip. And uh, so I what I did was when I when I got into my postdoc, I really started visiting uh, Latin America for longer periods, I mean, for for archival stays and so on. And then I took my family there and, and we lived there for quite a while. So getting to your book, I noticed that the title is slightly different between the original German and subsequent Spanish versions, uh, Cortez and the Conquest of Mexico, and then the English version that's coming out, uh, Conquistadors and Aztecs, The History of the Fall of Tenochtitlan. And I'm wondering if you were wanting in the English edition to somehow demote the importance of Cortez. Of course, you can't do that because, you know, even in your book, he's the central character. But I'm wondering if you were trying to promote the idea that it's more complex than that. 
Yes, well, actually, the, the German title is the head title. The first uh, top title is also uh, Conquistadoren und Azteken, that is Conquistadors and Aztecs. I, I know perhaps you you missed out on that, but uh, I, I actually decided um, to do that. I, I was first asked uh, by the publisher to do a study on Cortes. They want, what, what they wanted was a biography of Cortes. And uh, I said, well, that writing about the conquest, I had that in mind as something I would like to do after retiring, because of course I had studied that. I had read the sources uh, once many years ago in my, in my study time, but I had since not been a specialist of colonial history. I've always been interested, remained interested, and I taught classes on uh, colonial Latin American history, but I haven't, I didn't do too much research on that. And so I thought that would be something nice to do once I retire. But then comes this, this publisher back, which is, of course, a, a highly esteemed publishing house in, in, in Germany. And, and they asked me if I, if I wouldn't like to, to write about uh, Cortes because of the 500 years uh, of the fall of, of Tenochtitlan. And so I said, well, yes, I would like to do that. And, and, and I agreed to do that because of several reasons. And the first was I saw that in the German uh, publishing system, it is pretty hard to, to find publishers uh, of a certain level who would do books on Latin American history, because in, in Germany, it's rather, unfortunately, a marginal topic, Latin America. And so I thought, well, I, that, that is a good offer for me to get a book contract on, on doing a book on a, what I think is a, is a decisive uh, topic of Latin American history for uh, a German audience. And then also the alternative, uh, if I disagreed, would have been that some some journalist would have probably written about the topic. And although I admire much of the journalistic work that's, that's being done, I thought the time was ripe to have a new academic type of book, which is also readable for a broader public, of course, uh, on the conquest uh, uh, of Mexico, because it has been such a long time, you wouldn't believe it, that a German author has written about the topic. It's really uh, like, uh, I don't know, but... Uh, 40, 50 years ago, that since we had the last uh, comprehensive study on the conquest of Mexico. So I, I decided to do that. And uh, of course, when I, when I started my research, I soon found out that, uh, of course, the literature on the conquest had really grown by leaps and bounds in the last 30 years. And it has really gone into new directions. Of course, I had read some of that stuff while preparing my classes. But I, when, as I went deeper, I really thought this is something that deserves a new kind of study to also synthesize much of the work that has been done by ethnic historians, especially, and, and by a whole school of Mexican and Latin American scholars, but also of scholars based in the United States. And uh, I really got excited about uh, the idea of writing this kind of book. And the more I got excited, the more I found out that it would be hard for me to put that book into a biography. It was really, uh, it turned out that, 
of course, the more we know, the more we've known about the conquest in the in the recent decades, the less the importance of the figure of Cortes and also of Moctezuma has become. So, you know, I negotiated with my publisher and uh, in the end, they they finally agreed that it wouldn't be a, a straight biography. Although I did remain close to the figure of Cortes and that also for for uh, the reason of the availability of sources of course is something that we as historians have to struggle with all the time uh, the sources the source material that cortez has left us is huge for his period it's absolutely outstanding for this uh, early 16th century and uh, that is why we also know much better about him than about any of the other people involved in the story. Yeah, I just want to mention that uh, in reading your book, I was just amazed at the level of detail in this in the stories. And I think it'd be really interesting if, if you could briefly explain how you got the material because I mean, say 500 years ago, and yet it's it's as if it happened yesterday in terms of the, the level of detail. And I know there are something called the codices that were, I guess, transcribed by uh, priests there at the time. And it's it's quite amazing. It's a battle by battle description and the and the description of the palaces and the architecture and the rituals. I mean, it's just amazing. And I, I I assume that you read these things in the Spanish version, or was it also in the Aztec version? I read it in the Spanish version. Yeah, I have to admit that I'm I'm not a scholar of Nahuatl, and uh, I'm not an, an ethnic historian per se. And of course, that is a deficit. And I try to make do by including as much of the specialized uh, literature available as possible. But there is a lot of material, of course, that has been translated. And as we know, a lot of the content is being lost in translation and scholars are still struggling with understanding fully many of the uh, documents that have been left to us after the conquest have been written by uh, indigenous peoples who try to reconstruct their own version of history and end of the conquest and uh, there are still many open questions, I would say. But of course, in the last uh, 30 years, we have learned quite a bit about these um, indigenous sources and this knowledge I was able to include. So are, are we talking about thousands of pages of material then? Or I mean, what give us a sense of... Uh... Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there are first there are these published type of sources. And that starts actually with the letters of Cortes himself. He was the first to write the history of events. And uh, of course, that is a highly stylized type of history in which he tries to legitimate what he did, because if it comes to the uh, basic facts, one could say that he did not obey his superior, he uh, did not obey orders, and he did he did wrong in doing what he did, and, and he had a lot to explain to his uh, majesty in Spain in order to legitimate what he had done. And he had very many opponents, very many enemies 
in Spain and in Cuba especially who were working against him. So the demand for him to explain his deeds and, and to show what he did in a in the proper light, in his own version was very, very strong. And one one thing one could say about Cortes was that he was really pretty much a master of the word. He was really good in in stylizing uh, his own deeds. So we have that, we have the letters of, of Cortes, but then we also have uh, the many reports of the people who accompanied uh, Cortes and perhaps the most famous one is La Verdadera Historia uh, de Bernal Díaz del Castillo, the, the, the truthful history of the conquest, as he called it, uh, which is a thousand page book in itself. And many, many other uh, reports about the events, which have partly copied from former sources like Cortes and Bernal Díaz del Castillo, but then also added their own material, their own sources. Uh, for example, one of the most famous people who wrote about it is Bartolomé de las Casas, who was able to talk to some of the actors in, in, that, in that history. So he had oral knowledge and would include that. And, and then, of course, later on, also descendants of the indigenous elite would write their version, including some of the oral traditions of their own peoples into that story. And so the story grew. And all these early publications have been studied over and over again. So you could almost write a whole book about the editions of Cortes's letters or of Bernal Diaz del Castillo's book. There's a lot out there. And then you also come to archival sources, which have been uh, preserved, especially in the Archivo de Indias in Sevilla, where Cortes left so many traces because of the fact that his enemies and opponents sued him. And he, uh, once he came back to Spain, he was uh, involved in so many lawsuits, and there are so many protocols of the, of the many interviewed, you know, about witnesses. Witnesses, exactly. There are so many reports about the witnesses and counter witnesses, uh, and uh, all these uh, materials uh, have been also edited and re-edited, and uh, so there are a lot of material out there. That's thousands and thousands of pages and that is really outstanding for an event of the early modern period you do not find too many events of that 16th century which are so well documented i'd like to go now to the, the kind of the heart of the book which is kind of correcting the mis common misconceptions and i realize in the in just an hour interview we're not gonna we're only gonna scrape the surface but uh, i remember growing up in in new york city learning about the not we didn't name them conquistadors they were explorers and they were very much romanticized you know and it was completely from a european perspective there was no notion of anything doing anything harmful to the indigenous it was just claiming new territory that almost as if there was no one there before and i guess that's one of the one of the common misconceptions but you talk about the misconceptions about the spanish conquest of mexico and it wasn't quite as one-sided, easy victory of just the tiny band of 300 Spaniards versus thousands upon thousands of Mexican uh, warriors. Uh, so what what really happened? And 
I don't know if you can encapsulate this in a the kind of concise version, but uh, what happened and how is it different from the common misconceptions? Yeah, Stuart, thank you. Uh, well, it's really hard to synthesize the whole story, but I'll try. Uh, and and of course, the myth that you grew up with uh, reminds me very much of, of what I've been taught in, in school in, in Germany in, in the 1970s. So these versions are not too, too different. And uh, I wonder that perhaps even today, some of these uh, mythical versions are still being learned in some of the schools so but uh, to come to to what what happened of course we as historians always construct new versions of history and uh, none of it will ever be the definite one because any generation needs to rewrite history and and does that with with different uh, emphasis with the interest in different actors and and in different uh, theoretical approaches what i did uh, and i did that uh, i have to say that beforehand uh, staying on the shoulders of giants who did all the research that i synthesized i did build my own thesis on the work of the ethno historians historians of colonial of the colonial period that i uh, have already mentioned and um, their version today differs very much from this old mythical version. The old mythical version actually has two sides. Um, the one that, uh, Stuart, that you just mentioned is the positive legend of Cortes and his few adventurers who conquered the huge empire without much delay and without much resistance. And the other side of the legend is the black legend, which said that, that uh, Cortes and his men were especially brutal in, in conquering Mexico. And that goes along with the condemnation of, of Cortes and, and the conquerors. So we have this, this white legend on the one hand and black legend on the other. Yeah, if I could just throw in this little quote from your book that uh, actually, I think this is the way you open your book, that in March of 2019, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, asked the king of Spain and the pope to apologize to the indigenous peoples of Mexico for the atrocities committed during the conquest. And it didn't get such a great reception back in, in Spain, I don't think, uh, or from the pope. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. Of course, I mean, this is really... A wonderful example how how important and relevant this question remains for Mexicans and for Spaniards too because you know this is a, a two-side story for people in Spain for many people in Spain a part of their understanding and their national identity uh, is that they were once uh, an imperial superpower and of course in that story Cortes is one of the mythical heroes still for many not for all Spaniards of course but but quite for, for quite a, a number and in Mexico of course Cortes nowadays is more or less persona non grata that is somebody whom you you wouldn't want to build a monument for uh, all the efforts to build a monument for Cortes have failed over over decades and decades because Cortes is understood as as the destroyer of our culture of course you know the problem is what is the true mexican culture is it only 
the Aztec culture that was, of course, destroyed in the course of the conquest? And was it only Cortes and his men who destroyed that? Nowadays, we are much more willing to differentiate and to take into account the fact that Cortes and his few Europeans were not at all the only and uh, the overtly decisive actors in the whole game, but that they were part of a coalition, a coalition that was formed with many different indigenous groups who had already been opponents, enemies of the Aztecs or the Mexica people uh, before the Europeans even arrived. What the Europeans did was they prompted the whole situation with the new dynamics that made sort of a revolution or a rebellion against Mexica rule become more feasible or to look more feasible than it had before. And that is why the Spaniards were able to attract allies. And without these allies, they would never have been able to a survive, to move in this huge territory unknown to them, and in the end, even fight a two years war against what was at that point one of the world's largest city-states and uh, a very powerful empire. So we have to get rid of the idea that Cortes was acting more or less with his Spanish men and with the few men he had available, more or less in isolation, but rather do we have to admit the fact that he was part of a very large and very heterogeneous coalition of peoples who were all more or less out for destroying Tenochtitlan's power. And why would they do that? Because the power of the Mexica, of the Aztec people, it was built on, on a system of tributes and uh, taxation that was weighing heavily on the shoulders of the subdued ethnic groups. And you mentioned subdued. I mean, I, I think it's uh, pretty clear in your book that the history of, of this region of Mesoamerica was you know, pretty densely populated, certainly much, much more densely than North America. But then uh, I shouldn't say North America, but uh, north of Mexico. And that there were continual wars and skirmishes and jockeying for power. And there may be a misconception that indigenous peoples are somehow peaceful. <laughs> you know, some are and some aren't. You know, this particular set of peoples was not uh, very peaceful. And there was a kind of brutality in the culture. And, of course, brutality in the Spanish culture, too. So the, you know, the Mexican culture engaged in uh, human sacrifice. And usually the, the victims were from the surrounding peoples. And of course, the Spaniards were burning people at the stake. So, you know, I don't know what the equivalence is here, but certainly there was a tremendous amount of violence and uh, religious beliefs that promoted that violence in both cases. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, beliefs, religious beliefs, who, who really fired all this, all these bonfires, so to say. <laughs> but uh, also, of course, uh, well. A parallel here is uh, between the European and the Mesoamerican situation is that in both regions, we see in the 16th century a period of 
of empire building you know that's this is what the, the mexica people do the so-called Aztecs do uh, and of course in in europe the 16th century is, is is a century of wars of of wars in which charles v would have to fight against the, the turks against the french against the what have you against almost all the rest of 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 europe and and there's a lot of cruelty and violence involved uh, on both sides and the important thing here is to see in that regard uh, uh, mesoamerica was was not an exception we have uh, we see imperial expansion also in africa in the period in the near and far east and uh, everywhere this imperial expansion goes hand in hand with wars with killings and with the imposition of the victor against the, the vanquished and and so we have the same situation in mesoamerica but what is of course specific to the mesoamerican situation is that this sort of empire building also goes hand in hand with building alliances so the, what what the mexica the aztecs did was they would of course conquer neighboring uh, ethnic groups they would burn their, their cities, they would burn their temples, but they would also try to integrate these groups into their empire, into their state, entre comillas in, in, in quotation marks, and integrate them by adopting their elites, for example, by uh, also by marriage policies and so on. So what we have here is, is a very highly dynamic situation of almost constant wars of very short phases of peace, very similar to the European one. And then, you know, these Europeans come here and they bring a new factor. Of course, they have all this technology with them, these new animals and, and weapons. I was reading that in the Americas, they only had the alpaca. Whereas in Europe, they had the horse, they had the uh, the cow, they had the sheep, they had the goat. I mean, they, they, it was a real disadvantage in terms of uh, of animals and also a real disadvantage in terms of materials too. They didn't have steel. And so their weaponry was made out of obsidian, which is a kind of volcanic glass in a sense. And it, it's very sharp, but very brittle. It was no contest. If you try to spear somebody against a metal armor, the, your weapon will immediately break. Exactly. But of course, in the old version, it would have been still 500 well-armed Europeans against 50,000 or more warriors who were also very much uh, dedicated to what, what they were doing. And, and they did find ways to kill also the Europeans, although they did have the better weapons. But this, this factor of the better equipment, of the better arms, does not really explain the success. Right. It's the, the alliances, uh, I think, is probably the more important factor. And, and I'm amazed reading the book, what Cortez's political skills were. It seemed almost as if he was a genius. You never use that word in the book. But he knew when to make alliances. He knew when to make peace, when to resort to threats, when to resort to actual violence. He didn't seem to resort to cruelty for cruelty's sake. He would use it as a weapon. He was perfectly willing to use brutal tactics, but only when it was going to be help his cause. He was ruthless when he had to be ruthless. He was conciliatory when he had to be conciliatory. He 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 was seemed to be a really brilliant tactician, especially in the political sphere, in terms of figuring out how to 
make these alliances and knowing who to trust and who not to trust. I mean, it's really quite amazing considering, you know, there was no common languages. It's all being done by his interpreter, Malinche. I wouldn't say he was a genius. I would say he was a, a very cunning diplomat and uh, also a very cruel soldier. So uh, he had learned many lessons during his time in the Caribbean when, when he accompanied the conquest of Cuba, for example. So he had learned some lessons of how to deal with these foreign peoples, of how to intimidate them and, and to, to negotiate and then betray and, and make false promises and uh, make false alliances and, and all these kind of tricks he had already on his hand. And, and he took all that to, to Mesoamerica and, and, and he used it. But what was decisive was actually the fact that Malinche or this, this female slave was named Malinche, was able to give him. Uh, she was uh, a central figure uh, because of her linguistic capacities, because she originally came from an, a Mexica background and, and had been also uh, growing up with the learning other, other languages. And that gave her uh, the power or the knowledge to to translate between the different languages and she was she was a real genius because she very very quickly learned spanish uh, and that was for her also decisive for survival of course she she was a in a very weak position she was a, a slave so to say of of the spaniards and uh, so she had to take care to survive this uh, very threatening situation and uh, but she she did that very well and uh, she developed these skills to negotiation that were so helpful to cortes and then i would also add an element which we can see in in many of the stories that have been told and, and in many of the details that we know uh, where, where Cortes was simply lucky, you know, for example, in the Noche Triste, in the, in the sad night when the Spaniards have to flee from Tenochtitlan because they, they had overdone it, you know, their show of force in Tenochtitlan and they were finally thrown out uh, or had to run from the city because the uh, Mexica had finally decided to make war against them. In that situation, he was simply lucky, you know, to get away and, and to be able to, to reconstruct his forces. And of course, again, it was his alliances with the people from Tlaxcala who gave him shelter at that point and who allowed him and his troops to regenerate and uh, to come back to the field of war with an even stronger army. But I, I wouldn't say that was too much of a master plan here, that was too much of a, of a genius in, in Cortes. I would say that he, he rather found out that being in the situation he was confronted with, he was at, at first probably very, very surprised and very frightened about what he'd found because he hadn't expected such a powerful antagonist there and so but for him also it was not possible to go back he was in no situation to return or w without having had a, a, a huge success beforehand 
because, uh, as I said earlier, you know, he had gone against his orders and uh, he was a, a, an officer who, had, who was had not obeyed his, his commanders. And uh, so for him to simply go back and say, okay, you know, I haven't been successful would have meant the gallows. Yeah, among the other things, among, among his uh, infractions, so to speak, is that he had the messenger who was supposed to be uh, relieving him a command by giving the command to somebody else, to uh, Luis de Medina. Cortes had the uh, messenger killed <laughs> so that he wouldn't have a rival. You just alluded to the uh, this retreat, the uh, the night of, of sadness, of, of course, by the Spanish perspective. Uh, so there really were two parts to the to the conquest. The, the first part, your book strongly suggests that Montezuma, if I'm pronouncing that right, was had not, uh, according to the common misconception, just sort of welcomed these Spaniards in and thinking they were gods. He had heard of of his conquest of neighboring city states, and he must have been terrified. And he was trying to do everything he could to coax uh, Cortes to leave. And he thought he could maybe make friends, maybe, you know, figure out what to do. And he, he was not ready to immediately resist militarily. And it was only when things started to get bad enough, uh, or the, maybe the intentions got to be clear enough that there was this uh, resistance. And then Cortes retreated. Uh, they lost half their men, retreated to the, back to the coast. And then Cortes had to remobilize an even more powerful coalition in order to, uh, to conquer Tenochtitlan. And one thing that we'd really need to mention, especially during this time of pandemic, is that the diseases that the Europeans brought uh, had had enough time to decimate the population. I think it was, uh, what, 40% just in the first year of the population, and then ultimately 95%. I mean, you can imagine with the current pandemic, if we had that kind of death rate. And of course, it, the coalition members also must have lost a lot of men too, but it, it threw everything into disarray, not just in terms of the loss of men, but also the loss of resources because the agriculture certainly suddenly had no workers <laughs> practically. So the whole economy was thrown into a total disarray and chaos. And it was in that setting that the second attempt, the successful, from the Spanish point of view, attempt to conquer the city uh, succeeded. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we we couldn't uh, understate the importance of the pandemics that were going on in, in that uh, uh, period and that decimated especially uh, the in indigenous peoples because their full grip took hold at the height of the of the fighting so uh, uh, for example the immediate follower follower of Moctezuma um, as a Tlatoani as a speaker the king of of the Mexica after a little more than three months died from smallpox and so the Mexica were in this situation to elect another new head of state in a, in a very short time and, and of course that was very very difficult given the situation that at that point their city was lay already under siege and so this is a situation in which the forces and the strength of the Mexica people was diminishing quite rapidly and the more the strength diminished the more the neighboring cities would 
side with the Spaniards and with the coalition of Spaniards and Tlaxcaltecas and so on. So this was also like a, a process, a dynamics, which was quite normal for the Mesoamerican situation that uh, the city-states would change uh, quite opportunistically to the, to the more powerful, to the more promising party without paying much respect to say traditions or or culture you know nowadays in mexico many people say that for example malinche and the other and the other allies of the spaniards were were traitors traitors to the mexican nation but of course you know that doesn't make much sense in that historical situation to blame anyone of treason because uh, there was no such thing as a unified mexico Yeah, and in, in this respect, it was not so different from most of Europe at the time, which was, you know, much, very much regional city-states, so little kingdoms, and we, we weren't talking about countries uh, for the most part yet. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that was probably also one of the reasons why Cortés went along so well, because he knew the game, you know, he knew how to to negotiate with one and then, you know, make friends with one in order to attack uh, the other and he quite rapidly was able also to learn that perhaps was part of his his genius that he was really able to learn in the situation to to learn the context uh, the cultural context and the fact that the many people that he came had to face were so different and they had uh, different languages they had different uh, cultures and they were also fighting for their own interests and uh, that was something that he really was able to to use to his own advantage you know one thing i was really uh, struck by in the book is that uh, cortez himself seemed to have a lot of admiration for the indigenous uh, culture and accomplishments which is you know very different from what you hear i think uh, you know in the kind of popular imagination that oh they were these primitives or something with savages but it, i mean of course there was a lot of uh, shock about the human sacrifice But other than that, there was, I think, a lot of uh, admiration for their math, astronomy, agriculture, architecture, irrigation and plumbing systems that were better than the European ones. It was a socially stratified, very sophisticated uh, kind of society. They had sports. They had some kind of ball game. The, the dress, it was a multi-ethnic, multilingual place. It was larger than Paris at the time, uh, the Tenochtitlan. And Uh, so there was a, a lot of, I think, respect for what an advanced uh, civilization it was. And it, the only thing that was being disparaged was their religion. And, you know, you have to wonder to what extent was the, the religious difference just a total excuse for uh, for conquering. You know, that was the kind of the, the veneer of acceptability that it's okay to do this because we're bringing Christianity to the the uninitiated and, you know, we're saving their souls kind of thing. And that would, that would, in the letters to back to the King from uh, Cortez, that was the, usually the rationale given, I think was that, you know, we're bringing Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that was the easiest motive and, and uh, the most obvious reason that was uh, cited again and again by Cortez and the many men who, accompanied him by the Christians, you know, they were there to, to Christianize, to, to missionize and uh, to gain new souls for the right faith. That was their idea. 
But um, of course, you know, if we can really say that Cortes admired these cultures remains, from my point of view, rather rather dubious. Of course, in his uh, letters, he does present it uh, in quite a admirative tone. He, he speaks about the city and, and all the wealth and also the social order and so on. But of course, we have to ask ourselves, why does he do that? Because he addresses these letters directly to the king in order to create a very positive image of what he's done. And, and the larger and, and richer the thing that he conquers is being presented, the more his own glory would would grow. And uh, that, that is one point. The second point is that, of course, the Spaniards, after Columbus's voyages and, and, and all these adventures in the Caribbean, were still hoping to at some point find the way to where they really wanted to go. It was not the Caribbean or this landmass there in the West that they wanted had wanted to go to in the first place. They had wanted to go to, to India, to, to the riches of the East. And so, of course, everybody hoped that uh, Cortes's expedition would bring this breakthrough, that he would be finally able to find these uh, huge empires in the East that uh, Marco Polo in the Middle Ages had propagated uh, so much. And, and what Cortes did in his letters was also to try to fulfill this kind of expectation by, by presenting this Aztec empire in the way he does. Of course, he knows that this still is not the Chinese emperor nor, nor the Indian islands uh, that that the Spaniards had been looking for for 30 years already when he set off. But that is something comparable, at least. It is much more, much richer, much more civilized, and has much more to offer than these these tiny chiefdoms in the on the Caribbean islands. And that was the reason why he would present his findings the way he did. But then, as you correctly said, in the end, it would all boil down to the very fact, but, the big but, they are sacrificing human beings. And uh, they're not only sacrificing them, but they are all also eating them. And, uh, of course, that was absolutely out of the question for any Christian to accept. And uh, that was also a good way to legitimate all the violence and brutality that uh, it took to conquer this city and to, to kill so many people along the way. Right, and to, fr and to frame them as, you know, the, the work of the devil. Yes, yes, yeah. That was also a very big thing, you know, that it's really a story about the God-driven uh, Christians and then the Antichrist, more or less. But, of course, and, and there's a little clue to it, that it was also about saving these indigenous peoples from the Antichrist, from the devil, and to give them by, well, actually, even by, by when, they, when they were killing them, they were freeing their souls from the devil and giving them the possibility to, at some point, become Christians enter, and enter paradise. 
I couldn't help uh, thinking there was some similarities, not uh, precise, of course, but some similarities between the Mesoamerican pantheon of gods and the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. And and but the, but Western, you know, Christian Europe was has always been fascinated <laughs> by the Greco-Roman gods. They don't disparage them in the way they did the Mesoamericans. I mean, our days of the week in, in English, at least, are named after Norse gods. <laughs> you know, it's in German too. Yes. <laughs> It seems somehow charming, you know, that, that those, those older religions seem charming as long as they're from Europe. When the missionaries come, you know, and, and some of them, Cortes already brings them with him. When the missionary comes, they, of course, also are out there in order to install the Christian faith and to uh, be missionaries. But uh, they also have quite an interest in, in uh, the culture and, and they start writing about that. They, they start collecting information and so on. So this is also these Renaissance people are kind of ambivalent, one might say. And you can see that especially in the more educated ones and, and to a degree even in Cortes. So maybe we have time for one one more topic very concisely, and that's the role of women in, in each culture. I was really fascinated to read that the rights of women was maybe somewhat better in Mesoamerica than it was in Europe, that uh, women had rights to, to own property and to uh, various legal, legal rights. There was still very much a division of labor, but not as in the same way as in Europe. So there were certain kinds of professions that were considered for females. I guess things that involve social skills and uh, healing. That is true. That is true. Yeah, women had a more more prominent place. Women did have a, a more prominent place than in the European societies, I would say. Uh, but still, you know, it was a patriarchal uh, society too. That uh, it was dominated by men, and of course, nobody would have ever thought to have a, a, a female Tlatoani, a female. Uh, uh, chief or, or king, that was out of the question, but elite women did have a very important role in crowning a successor, for example, because in the Aztec world, the ruler had the right to have very many women and he would have lots and lots of offspring and, of course, a lot of rivalry among the sons who would become his successor. And that's where where the women did have a, a very important role and, and were also very powerful uh, figures. And then in the lower strata of society too, the women did fulfill a very uh, important role. They were considered to be the perfect match to the man and, and only in the combination of men and women would the universe function and then every gender had their own spheres as you already said you know the uh, sphere of war uh, of priesthood and so on those were when politics was reserved to men much like in europe but in the sphere of the women had more rights than european women would have had especially legal rights and right to divorce for example and also the right to have certain professions which were then highly regarded also in the Aztec society. So one disadvantage of um, being so attached to sacrificing people, sacrificing your enemy, is that you, you wrote that there were probably opportunities during the war for the um, Aztecs to kill Cortez, but they didn't because they were hoping to capture him alive so they could sacrifice him and then eat him. 
and then because there was, they thought that was going to be so much more glory to the to their side, uh, they didn't kill him when they had a chance. Yeah, there are one one or two uh, instances when when one can at least guess that that must have been the case because uh, the way it is described, at least at one point at one of these. Uh, battles he was already lost and one wonders why nobody would just simply kill him but of course catching this major figure of the enemy would have meant at least from the understanding of the of the Mexica an end perhaps even to the war that I, that is at least my explanation for it why in that situation they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, have killed him when they almost had him. But again, this is also one of the instances which shows us uh, how lucky Cortes was. And it's also been a lot of coincidence in these kind of fightings. Of course, uh, according to Cortes and the many generations that followed, that was not simply coincidence, but that was God's will. Uh, that's the way that he interpreted it. But I'd say he was simply had quite a bit of luck in this in this period and uh, so much luck that afterwards uh, that did not remain enough to to really bring him to the glory that he had hoped for because afterwards he got stuck in all these lawsuits and he did not gain the position that he had hoped for and uh, he was soon uh, being restricted and he was pushed out of his position exactly exactly yeah yeah the king had given him a total power over that region. I mean, every title you can imagine, the governor and the judge and the executioner, and, and eventually it was push, pushed out. Exactly. But the king also made clear very quickly that he would not have a, a parallel kingdom to arise over uh, across the ocean, but that he would uh, want to finally control it all. And uh, that's the reason why he sent his, uh, his his officials, his in the end even a, a vice roy, a vice king, uh, in order to rule the new Spain that uh, Cortes had conquered for him. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. I, I think we did manage to cover quite a bit of ground, so thank you for that. Uh, my guest today is Stefan Rinka, a professor at the Department of History at the Institute for Latin American Studies and the Friedrich Meinecke Institute at the Free University of Berlin, talking about his book, uh, Conquistadors and Aztecs. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you so much, Stuart. It was a wonderful occasion. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.